Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. How do we know what is truly right and what is wrong? I would imagine that everyone in this room sitting here or watching online has an idea or an understanding of what is right and what is wrong, and probably the desire to do the right thing in any situation. Now, your standards of what is right and what is wrong may differ from the person sitting beside you, but I imagine you agree nonetheless that there is a right and a wrong. For example, when you came into the room this morning, you made a decision that was either right or wrong, and now you're probably wondering what that decision was. And I'll I'll clue you into that right now. So when you came in this morning, I can tell right now that all my rule followers are over here. I know this because they made sure to sit on the right side of the room. Simple. So that must mean that everyone over here, maybe, are these my rebels over here? Come on. Yeah. Now, all joking aside, here, from my perspective, just give you guys some insight, you're, uh, from my perspective, you're on the right side. So we're cool. We're cool. I got you. But here's the thing. I want to, like joking aside, I want to talk into this perspective idea because perspective has a lot to do in our lives. Your perspective impacts your position on anything from what you believe is right and wrong, what is good, what is evil, what is beneficial for you, and what is damaging, and even your position on what is right and what is left is all dictated by your perspective. In naval and maritime history, you won't see sailors using terminology like left and right. And the reason is that all depends on their perspective or where they are looking from the ship. So if you're saying, hey, go on to the left side, the guy on the other side is like, what what are you talking about? My left, your left? It's like it gets confusing. It all depends on that person's perspective. And so they had to create another way to communicate because you can imagine the disasters that could take place with that. And so they would come up with new terminology they would use. Left side became, anybody know? The port side. And the other side became the starboard side. Good participation. I like it. Good job. And so in the end, they found a new way to communicate. But overall, the ship became the guiding authority for the direction they were going. This need for a guiding authority, it's not just useful in the sea when you're sailing. We need this in every aspect of our lives because your perspective impacts your position. Your perspective is the lens in which you see the world around you. And that is made up of your life experiences and the experiences of those who are closest to you. That creates the lens how you see things. And that lens will naturally guide your moral compass and the decisions that you make day to day, including how you judge what is right versus what is wrong. The problem is our perspective 
is limited when it comes to seeing the big picture of this life. And while we try to make the best decisions we can with the most understanding of what we have, so often in life we can miss the forest for the trees. And the same is true for the religious leaders in Jesus' day. So far in this series, we've been traveling through the Gospel of Luke, and we've seen Jesus moving from town to town all throughout Judea. And crowds around the whole entire place are coming to see this Jesus and experience him firsthand. But among some of those crowds were this religious group called the Pharisees. Maybe you've heard of them before. Many of which took issue for the way that Jesus lived his life or the things that he taught were counter to what they believed was right and wrong. One of the bigger areas or areas of contention or issue for what they had was actually on the Sabbath, how they understood, how they perceived their perspective of the Sabbath. But before we jump into what the Sabbath is, we should probably kind of reflect on what the Sabbath is before we get to our main passage. It's good to refresh ourselves. Most of you might have heard this, some of you maybe not. And I will say, caveat, if you want a more comprehensive understanding of the Sabbath, because it is important, I'm not going to say it's not, but if you want a bigger understanding of the Sabbath, uh, Pastor Chris actually talked about this back in March. So I encourage you to go check out that on our YouTube channel. We're going to talk just a little bit about it today. But for today's passage, it's important for us to understand that this was a big day of rest for the nation of Israel. And it was commanded by God in the famous Ten Commandments. This was important. And Moses would further define specific regulations for what the Sabbath was, and how you were to live that out in Exodus 35, stating, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does work, any work on it, shall be put to death. That may seem like a heavy punishment when we read that. But it certainly shows the importance and the value that God placed on the Sabbath. And it helps us see two perspectives that the religious leaders would have had on that day. Or not just that day, any day that Jesus interacted with them on the Sabbath. Two of those perspectives, one of them being working on the Sabbath. That was to be taken seriously. And two, this was potentially a way to take Jesus down. With that said, I want to jump in today's passage, but I'm actually going to ask for your help. I like to do this. We did this last time I was up here, and when we read out loud together, I'm going to ask you to help me by reading the underlined words we see together. Can we do that? Sounds good. All right, let's do this. Let's jump in today. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. On a... Good, I just want to make sure I got you on that one. Honest to have it. While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? At first glance, it may look like they're stealing, like they're not taking, they're taking what is not theirs by going through this random person's field, but this actually isn't the issue. We read in Deuteronomy 23, 25, that the Old Testament law allowed for this to take place. They were able to, as long as they didn't take like a sickle to it, they can actually take the farming land, even though like, hey, it's not mine, but they can take just a little bit at a time. 
So this wasn't the issue that the Pharisees had. It wasn't that they were picking grain. It's that they were picking grain on the Sabbath. Now remember, when we read back in Exodus, no work was to be done on the Sabbath. The Pharisees believed that Jesus' disciples were breaking the law. From their perspective, they saw the act of picking grain as working on the Sabbath. And again, that was punishable by death. The question is, does picking grain on the Sabbath, not, not to sell, to do business with, but to just physically eat in the moment, is this work? Or are the Pharisees just being like jerks to them, hunting for anything, anything they can put against Jesus? Now, it can be easy to peg the religious leaders as self-righteous, ultra-religious conservatives who are just out of touch with reason and reality. And for some, those Pharisees, you're probably not wrong. However, part of their job was to enforce the law. And the reason they had to do this or felt the need to do this was because when, in previous time, whenever a person or the nation of Israel would fail to uphold the law, it wasn't just bad for that individual. It was bad for the nation of Israel as a whole. And so what they began to do was to put these laws around the laws, like fences to protect the people from breaking that core law that God had given them. And we actually do this in our own lives. For example, finish this saying if you know it. All right, here we go. Five minutes early is ten minutes. Yeah, some of you guys know. Maybe you've heard it before. To be on time, or be on time, be on, wait, I might mess this one up. Someone else told me this one earlier. To be on time is to be late. There we go. Okay, I've never heard that one until this week, and I was like, oh, this is how I know it. So maybe you've heard that version before, but in the Marines, they drilled it into us that you're going to be 15 minutes prior all the time, no matter what you're going. It's like, hurry up and wait. That was our motto. And so when they drilled this into us, it became a part of our core. Maybe you've experienced this as well. Think about your boss, for example. Maybe your boss wants to set a meeting to talk to their crew or their department. And so what they do is they set up a meeting with the next person in line. And so when they do that, that person begins to tell the next person and the next person that keeps going down the line. All the way, they're adding this 15-minute prior rule. Imagine how early you're going to be to that meeting. You're going to look stellar, but how far away did we get from the original intent of that meeting? For the Pharisees, the issue wasn't their desire to do right although that wasn't the only thing they wanted to do in that time. But that wasn't their problem. Their problem was that they lost sight of the original intent for why God established the Sabbath in the first place. The Sabbath was meant to be a time of rest and to be refreshed, to worship and remember God through creation and remembering their deliverance. It was a time to be set apart and holy. And for them to be set apart from the nations around them as they're reminded that Sabbath is a sign of their continued covenant with God as their chosen people. But these fences, they became more burdensome than life-giving. And they acted as if they were a way to earn redemption. Like if you you do these things and you don't do these things over here, you're going to be okay before God. Like you can earn it that way. But that's not the case. And we know today, because of Jesus, redemption is not possible without the one who has authority over the law. And he has a response 
for the Pharisees' claim that his disciples were breaking the law of the Sabbath. We pick up in verse 3. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Did you notice that in Jesus' response, he never felt the need to defend whether or not his disciples were breaking the Sabbath law. Instead, he recalls a story from the scriptures they would have known. A story of when David, who at the time wasn't even king yet, did what was unlawful by their law. But he was not condoned, or sorry, condemned. Instead, he would one day be crowned and held and revered as one of the greatest kings the nation of Israel would have ever seen. So when Jesus concludes that story and says to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's using David's story to make a parallel connection to his own. That if David was allowed to put aside the law in order to care for his people, how much more so the Son of Man to care for his, if not more. And the fact that Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, is huge. Because this title was reserved for one, for the coming Messiah they were all waiting for. So Jesus, he lets them know who he is. The one who would rescue the world and Israel from darkness. He is the Messiah. And the law, the law submits to him, not the other way around. He is Lord of the Sabbath and therefore he is the guiding authority for all that is right. And all that is wrong. But because the Pharisees' perspective, their limited perspective for the law and for who Jesus was, their position was set. And for them, him and his followers, they were lawbreakers. Done deal. This is it. We're going to use this right here. When in reality, Jesus has the authority to set aside the law, more so than David, in order to care for the needs of his people. That's the king that he is. Where traditions and fenced laws held people down, Jesus has the authority to flee them from bondage. And while this story points to the guiding authority of Jesus Christ, this next Sabbath story, because there's going to be another one, you know the Pharisees are like, okay, we'll get them next time, and there is a next time. This next one, it reemphasizes the importance and the power he has to do good. So we pick that up in verse 6, follow along with me. On another... Sabbath, there we go, you're still there. He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. Let's just pause here for a second. When Luke opens up this story by saying, on another Sabbath, he's reemphasizing that something important is here. There continues to be, again, this divide between how the Pharisees and how Jesus understand the purpose of Sabbath. While everyone is sitting before Jesus' teaching, the Pharisees and religious leaders are there, intent on finding a way to take Jesus down. I kind of picture them just standing in the back like internet trolls on the comment section, just waiting for him to slip. 
just waiting for him to say something, do something that, ha, I got you. They're just waiting, hunting in that moment. Anything they can use against Jesus. And they had some pretty good reason to expect that he would do something, like heal on the Sabbath, because he has done this before in previous times. They wanted to catch him working, because for them, healing on the Sabbath, that was work. And if they could use that to punish him by death, their problems were solved. But would healing someone really be work? Like, how do you measure the amount of effort Jesus took to heal somebody? Like, how does that work? Like, was he sweating? Like, was he like, did he look exhausted when he was done? Like, how is this work to the Pharisees? But it didn't matter. They saw what they wanted to see because they had a limited perspective. And instead of making sure that he would walk a tight line in order to make sure he would be off the radar for the religious leaders, Jesus looks at them as like, I just picture, challenge accepted. I got this. Like he does so often when they try and trap him. And so he looks at them and he knows their thoughts like it said. And we pick up in this verse 6, 8. Let's just read that, finish it out. He said to the man with the withered hand, come, stand here. And he did. He rose and he stood there. And so it's about to go down, and I love that Jesus is never willing to walk away from a difficult situation. Whether it be judgment or accusation from the religious leaders, or just when you look at it, it's like, Jesus, how are you going to heal this guy? This is impossible. He doesn't back down. Because he knows who he is. He knows the authority that he has. And he knows the mission he came here to do. Before we get into the rest of this epic showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders, I want us to notice something that Luke points out. Earlier in verse 6, he specifically, Luke, specifically noted that it was the man's right hand that was withered. And you could look at him and be like, oh, okay, no biggie, what, what does that mean? But in Jewish culture, they would have seen that, understood that as the right hand being withered, as seen in other Old Testament parts, that this was a punishment against, or from God against them for their sin. So the people around him would have been looking at that person like, yeah, you probably deserve that. You probably stand, you probably did something or your parents did or something like that, and you just deserve what you got. And they would be looking down at that. So if he heals this man, he's also not going to be healing him physically. They would have recognized the spiritual sense of that as well. That he wouldn't be held down from his sins anymore, but being released in freedom from that. This had such an impactful moment. Jesus, the, the tone, the atmosphere is set, and he picks this man. There could have been other people in the room, but he picks this man. He says, I'm going to do something here. And the Pharisees, however, would only find interest in the faults that Jesus might have. <clears throat> so they would be waiting, watching. But he looks right back at them, and he says this in verse 9. <coughs> and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it. After looking around at them, all he said to him was, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus has this wonderful ability. Anytime you see him interact with the religious leaders of that day, he has this wonderful ability to just stump them in their own thinking. They were ready to accuse Jesus for doing work on the Sabbath, but he was about to heal a man. 
Before he does, he looks at them and asks them simple questions. Remember, these were the law holders. They would have had answers to these questions, but they couldn't. Because if they answered one way that they should have, they basically would have given her permission. So they just remained silent and stared back at Jesus. They were the defenders of the law, but he wasn't breaking real laws. What is it better to do? No one would have disagreed. It's better to do good and better to save life. So Jesus turned his attention to the man and he asked him to stretch out his hand. Now it's like, that's, that's really cool that that happened, but you've got to think from this man's perspective now. This is a hand that has not worked in a long time. And Jesus is telling him to do that. And he could have been like, I don't know, man. Is this, like, have you seen this? This isn't going to work. But he trusts him. And though those muscles and tendons were atrophied, he didn't question Jesus. He trusted him. And in faith, he began to stretch out his fingers from his palm. And as he did, he was restored. He responded in faith. For the man, this would have been a celebration moment, a moment of relief from pain and difficulty. For others in the room, this would have been like, oh my gosh, like, did that just happen? Becky, did you see that? Like, this is, this, that, Jesus just healed this guy's hand. It was not good, now it's good. It would have been, oh, exciting. But for some in the room, it wasn't that at all. For some in the room, their perspective held them back. For the Pharisees, they would have rather this man be stuck as he was for just another day. Like, what's one more day going to hurt? Because in their mind, in their perspective, they would have seen it like, well, it's not like he can, you know, okay, his hand's working. Good, awesome, whatever. It's not like he can go work, earn a paycheck, and then better his life. So, Jesus, just wait one more day. Let him suffer one more day. How big of a deal is that going to be? Their perspective was limited. It's like what one commentator says, David Garland. He says, in their zeal to protect the law, they don't use it to set captives free, but to bind them even tighter. They have no power to heal, only to deal out death. But then Jesus walks into the world with not only the power to heal and to do good, to set captives free from whatever is holding them back, but he is the guiding authority that we all need to do what is right. He sees the big picture through the Father's eyes, and he will not lead us down paths that lead to darkness and sin. He leads with love. He leads with truth. He gives our lives meaning, and he asks us to be a part of his mission. He has the power to heal and to release us from bondage, from sin. Now, when we hear this interaction with Jesus, as we did in these two passages, it's good to ask ourselves questions, to reflect. We should never just open the scripture and be like, huh, good story, and then close it. But to reflect on it, I want to encourage you to reflect on this one in this way. When you interact with Jesus like we just did, how will you respond? Because there's always a call and then a response. Jesus called the man forward and he responded. How will you respond today? Will it be like the Pharisees? Maybe you came in here today with perceived ideas that Jesus and his followers, they have it wrong about so much in this life. Maybe you came in here this morning with an outcome already in mind and you were going to leave this place angry and upset because of what you heard. 
Is your position already set by your perspective? Or will you respond in a way that's like all the others who were in the synagogue that day? It wasn't a bad day for them. They experienced Jesus. It was really awesome. It was really cool. Maybe even a little emotional. Maybe they were filled with joy and excitement, but ultimately they leave and go into the world never really being changed that day. It all just kind of stays the same. Or like the one who was healed, will you respond to Jesus in faith, trusting him? Will you let him guide you and follow you in all the ways that he asks? And if you're willing and ready to respond in that way, then there are a few things I'd like to encourage you with this morning. And the first one is this. We need Sabbath. We need Sabbath. That might sound contradictory to the whole message we just talked about. Like, isn't he just against Sabbath? Isn't that what it looks like? But it's important to point out that Jesus never denies the need for Sabbath. He just knew its true purpose. The way that God designed Sabbath was to be a gift for our souls and to others. And ultimately, when we look at the Sabbath, when you really study it, the Sabbath actually points to Jesus as the only one who can give us true rest. Physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, Jesus is the one where we find rest. And so we slow down. We stop from the busyness of life and draw closer to him. But in our society, this is not the good thing to do. This is not the cool thing to do is to slow down. It feels lazy. I feel like I should be doing other things. People look at me, it's like I'm not doing anything, but... This is how we live in this world of rush and go and hurry. It's difficult for us because for us, when we rest, it's the enemy of productivity. If we're not producing, then we're not earning. If we're not earning, we're not getting the pay raise and the higher promotion and the new car and everything else you desire for more, more, more that we're told we're supposed to have on the billboards and illustrations and all that. You're not going to get that by resting, the world says. But we need Sabbath. We aren't created for seven days work week. At least, and I'll be honest, right now we're doing pretty good with six, uh, five if you get two days off. But Jesus says you can work six, but you got to have this one. you got to have this one. Maybe for you it starts by just when you go home today. For, for instance, this is not a Sabbath day for me and for ministers mostly. It's, this is a work day. So I usually take mine on a Saturday or a Friday. I'm not going to get stuck on the rule of which day you think it needs to be. But the point is, God says we need to rest. And so my wife and I, we usually do it on a Friday or Saturday, depending on her schedule. Maybe you need to go home and talk to your family and say, what day works best for us that we can set aside time and we're going to schedule this time for just us as a family? Or if you're single, then you already have an advantage in that way. What is the best day that works for you? And then when you wake up in the morning after you set those guidelines When you wake up in the morning, don't check the news. Don't check your cell phone. Keep it downstairs the night before. Don't get on social media and hear all the voices. Just get on your knees for a second. Open up with prayer to God. Ask him to just meet you in this day to help you find rest because we're not good at it. Begin with prayer. And then if you need to, if you're like me, go brew a cup of coffee because that's needed for me in the morning. And then I'm going to take my Bible, my paper Bible, not the one that I receive text messages and stuff on, Go open that scripture. You don't need to read for hours. Just sit down for like 15 minutes. Read a chapter, maybe two. Maybe start in the Psalms. Just 
make something, a structure that will say, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to spend time, intentional time with God. I need to be with Jesus today. This is what it points to. And throughout the day, remind yourselves when you're doing things, hopefully that bring joy and refreshment to you, invite Jesus into it. If you're going to go tubing down to James someday, invite Jesus into it. What does that look like? Maybe it's just experiencing nature around you. Maybe you're just thinking about him, like, God, this is so good that I have this day. This is beautiful. Like, bring him into every moment of that day and slow down. It's really hard for us to do. Because in the West, we've adopted this mentality that's like, go, 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 and the Sabbath is meant to slow, slow. It's getting awkward now, right? Slow. It's really hard, but it's so good for us. And if the Sabbath itself points to Jesus, then we know it's meant to bring life. Not only in us, but to others as well. Which brings me to my next point. The Sabbath, it's meant for good. It's meant for good. So often in life, especially here in America, when we're so over busy and over scheduled, rarely do we find time to really help others. Like, I wish I could help that person on the side of the road. Oh, I wish I could do that thing, but I just can't. I don't have the time for it. But on a day like the Sabbath, when we intentionally slow down to be with God, we become more aware of his heart for the people and the situations around us. Let me tell you, if your neighbor is deciding not to take a Sabbath and they invite you to come over and help them lay patio pavers on your Sabbath day, don't do it. It's terrible. Believe me. All right? It's good to have boundaries. But what I'm talking about here is setting up some time to be with God. But when you do that, you become more aware of the heart of God. And maybe there's a situation that you can help out with to be present in someone's life. Maybe for you that looks like providing a meal for someone who wasn't able to have one that day. Or maybe there's a friend or another family who's going through a difficult time and you already have scheduled, hey, we're going to have this meal. It's already prepped the day before. Let's invite people over. Maybe you can share a meal with someone who's just going through a hard time. It's not difficult. It's already planned. Just invite people into that. Be there for someone who is in need. Maybe... You see someone at the park, you want to go and spend your day in the park. I love Fountain Lake where there's a fountain feature, it just warms my heart. But maybe you like a different one for its tail, you go there, you go to the coffee shop, whatever soothes you, but you notice someone that's just a little off. They seem like they're struggling, something's like heavy on them. Just strike up a conversation. See where it goes. Maybe it goes nowhere, but maybe it leads somewhere. And maybe by the end of that conversation, when they feel heard, you're able to just ask them, like, can I pray for you? And remind them that God loves them and that they're there for him. And you got to do that because you saw a need, because you intentionally slowed down. It could even look like reaching out to a parent or a sibling who's not around you and checking in on them one day and just reminding them that they're loved and cared for and thought of. Parents in the room, I have to say this because I love students and I work with kids all the time and I see that they're in this world that is crazy that they're growing up in. Parents, on a Sabbath day, it's so important to take one to begin with. Put the phones down. They don't need more time in front of a screen. They need to know that you are there for them. They might not talk to you right away, and that's okay. Just be present. 
Ask them what's going on in their life. Really dig in. Go on a walk with them. Go tubing, whatever it takes. Something they enjoy. But they need to see you just show up and be there. They need that. Lastly, this is the big one. Make Jesus your guiding authority. For most of us in this room, this is extremely difficult. The idea to give up any form of control. We want to be the captain of our ship. And that may seem like a good idea every once in a while, especially when the waters are calm. But when it begins to rage, it's pretty evident that we're just trying to figure this out. All of us, myself included. And if we know that maybe we're not the best person at the helm, we need a guiding authority. That reality is, you and I live in very difficult waters. It's not normally calm. I, I, I find it hard to believe anyone would agree that it's calm. We live in difficult waters from political alliances being heightened. The causes we're pressured to have to stand with, and if we don't mention it, that must mean we hate, like, so much of that is in our news that you're seeing every single day. I can't turn on just YouTube alone, and I love YouTube, but I can't turn it on without seeing terrible things that are happening. It's just being pushed in your face. When I think of the redefining of gender or sexuality, or culture is continuing, continuing to shift all around us, trying to push us this way today and that way tomorrow, from the deafening wind of media and voices on social platforms saying one thing today and then one thing tomorrow. We make decisions from that that impact the direction of our life. Left is right, right is left. There is no more direction. The world says go any way that you want and you'll get exactly where you want to be. What? No. There's no wonder that there are waves of depression, anxiety, hopelessness, uncertainty. These waves are rising all around us. It's very evident. There's no true direction anymore. We need a guiding authority in our lives. And the best one we will ever find is Jesus. The king who will even set aside the law to care for his people. This is the love that he has for us. He wants to guide us. Nothing will stop him from his mission anyways, and he invites us to be a part of it. So when we're all going in different directions throughout this world, Jesus is moving forward, and he has a mission to bring people out of darkness and into light, to give people meaning and purpose in their lives, and he invites us to be a part of it. The choice is really ours in the end. The choice is yours. Will you continue to allow your perspective to impact your position today? Or would you give that spot to Jesus? I'm talking to everybody. Myself, I have to be challenged by this as well. You could be a Christian for two days or 40 years and we still are challenged to put Jesus at the helm, to make him the guiding authority. We got it until we don't got it. But Jesus is like, I want to take it all And if you give it to me, you can trust me. I won't steer you astray. I'll remove the sin in your life. Anything that's that's heavy upon you, I will take that upon myself. I will give you rest. It will happen. 
So will you continue to allow perspective to impact your position or will you allow Jesus to be your guiding authority, giving your life direction, purpose, and meaning? Like the man with the withered hand that Jesus interacted with in that story, he doesn't want you to go just another day without him. You've been doing that for a long time maybe. Maybe you just kind of started going off the side path. Maybe you've never given him your trust. He doesn't want you to go one more day. He wants to be there in your life. And he asks you to join him in this mission. It's your choice. Do you extend out your hand and let Jesus take it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's really difficult to give up control. And God, we come into every day with our own preconceived ideas. We've experienced life. Every person in this room has experienced life in so many different ways. It's hard from that perspective when we've all experienced things differently to make really good decisions. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. And while failure can be a good teacher, Jesus, you're an even better one. God, help us to put our trust in you the one who can find what we can find rest in. Help us to follow Jesus and give him our entire lives. To not stand there pointing fingers because he just says something we don't like, but to look at him and be like, let me just be challenged by this and pursue it. God, we are all challenged by scripture, by your word, by your son. But man, every experience that he has with someone who is usually seen as the cast out or the downtrodden, God, you meet them and always lift them up. But the decision is ours to respond in that way. God, help us today to put trust in you like we never have before. Help us to walk with Jesus today and tomorrow. Help us to be involved in people's lives, to see moments of need and interaction, God, where you could use us to do good just like your son. To be a Jesus follower, God, we have to live like Jesus. Help us to live in that way where we just see opportunities around us to do good, not be dictated by a day of the week or that a day doesn't, we don't do anything. We're not shut in from the world. God, help us to just be present in every moment. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we give thanks. Amen.